This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by a man who's written for more science fiction franchises than uh, most of us could probably list on our fingers, uh, including Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager uh, and most recently The Expanse. It's Naren Shankar. Hi Naren, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm very good. I think you've just uh, you've just about wrapped up on the final season of The Expanse. Is that right? Yes, we actually just put the last little bit of it to bed yesterday, uh, in in advance of um, just like with minutes to spare, uh, <laughs> uh, announced the new season um, at New York City Comic Con and released a trailer. So yeah, and the official date, um, which episode one drops, and which is December tenth. Uh, I believe I should check that before I start giving wrong information already. <laughs> yes, uh, it is December 10th. <laughs> December 10th. That's good. So yeah. a, a nice early Christmas present then there. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm sure many of our listeners will be excited, uh, to, you know, to catch that season because, um, as much as in some ways the expanse feels very, very di- at the sort of other end of of the sci-fi TV genre to Star Trek, but I think there's a lot of overlap in terms of the fan communities because that is a show that has absolutely been embraced by science fiction fans, hasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a it's a lovely thing to watch, but yes, it is probably at the absolute opposite end of the spectrum from Next Generation. <laughs> I'm kind of curious for you as someone who's been working in the genre for, you know, the best part of your kind of professional life. Um, how has it changed over the years? How has the kind of industry's view of science fiction as a genre changed? Um, and the kind of shows that you can do these days? I think it's changed dramatically. I mean, the, um, you know, when we were doing Star Trek Next Generation, you know, that show was considered its own weird little thing. It was, you know, very successful. It did very, very well. It was, you know, considered to be a hit, but it was also, it was also considered to be, you know, a niche. It was its own thing. It was, you know, mm-hmm. not really, you couldn't really apply, you know, anything you, in terms of like work experience, you know, for that show, especially as a writer, 
It didn't translate to other things. It didn't translate to the cop show or the doctor show or the lawyer show. At least that was the perception in the industry. I mean, internally, mm-hmm. we felt we felt very different about it because, you know, I think, and you know, you talk to people who've come out of that out of that group. Um, you know, science fiction, in many ways, is is a is a superset of you know genres. It's it's not it's not you know mm-hmm. a subset. It is it, you can tell a murder mystery or a cop show or a medical mystery or a you know drama of any of those kinds within the context of a science fiction show but that wasn't the perception at the time and so when you you know i remember when you know after i I moved off of next generation even trying to get an agent to read an episode of star trek was difficult they were like, do you have anything else i can't really send this out i can't nobody wants to read this it's you know so you know, and that, you know, we're talking about like mid nineties. Now mm-hmm. it's a totally different ballgame. It's like people understand, you know, I, I think, and have been exposed to genres so much more and they understand that it's, you know, it's not just this, this, you know, specialty kind of thing anymore. It's so widespread. It's so mainstream. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it really couldn't be more different than it was back then. And do you think Next Generation was kind of the start of that in some ways? Because, I mean, that was a show that became a sort of mainstream hit far beyond expectations, wasn't it? That, uh, you, you know, it did become something that was kind of, you know, families all over the world were settling down to whether or not they were kind of dedicated sci-fi fans who had, you know, been watching Blake Seven and the original mm-hmm. Battlestar Galactica and these kind of shows. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, you know, the uh, well, what's funny... You're talking about families watching it. I heard from so many people on the expanse that who said, like, and you know, people who were working on the show saying, you know, you worked on Next Generation. I used to watch that with my dad, or I, you know, <laughs> it's like that was like the constant refrain that people had really loved that show, and that was like the first kind of mainstream exposure to science fiction. But yeah, I think I think you know, Next Gen was really, I think the first time the show had kind of crossed uh, a science fiction drama had crossed over. Um, you know, and, and had that kind of recognition. And it sure, it surely did seem to open the doors, I think, in a lot of ways to other things that came afterwards. Maybe it was a kind of gateway drug then for a lot of people <laughs> to kind of hook them in. It was also, know? it was also a very accessible show, you know, and, and yeah. it was, uh, I think there was a, a lot of factors in its, in its favor. It was far more popular than the original series, you know, I mean, mm. it really was. I mean, when it aired. Yeah. Yeah. And you, when you joined that show, am I right in thinking you were a fan of the original series already? Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Big fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and when had you first seen that? Was that during the kind of reruns period that you'd first kind of <sighs> I, plugged I into pro- that? Yeah, probably. I mean, I was, I was really young. Um, but it mm-hmm. was, I suspect it was in the first sort of run of reruns of that show. Um, I do remember. Like in the, in the seventies going to New York City, my, with a, with a buddy of mine who was also like a fan of the show. Our, you know, our mom, uh, his mom took us <laughs> to New York City to see one of the early, you know, Star Trek conventions, you know, where they were still kind of, you know, before the, the Star Trek, the motion picture had come out. And, um, but yeah, that was, uh, I was kind of, you know, excited about anything that was even remotely a science fiction show because i just liked it um and i think that's probably you know i I, I, in no small small part i would say that star trek's 
part of the reason I went into physical sciences. I mean, I, I obviously, you know, had a had an affinity for it, but that was one of the things I think, you know, in the back of my mind, uh, uh, probably pushed me in that direction. Because you did a physics PhD, is that right? Before kind of moving into the screenwriting. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I was uh, I started as an arts student um, at Cornell and. And then I transferred into engineering and then as I was, and then stayed through graduate school. And as I was in the process of doing my dissertation, I started gravitating back towards art. So, um, by the time I left, I kind of decided I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. And, um, I had, uh, uh, one of my best friends in college was Ron Moore. And he, he, he and I and another friend were in a literary society together where we did a lot of just fun creative writing. And this friend dragged Ron out to Los Angeles to be a writer. And then a couple of years later, Ron dragged me out to Los Angeles and said, hey, be a screenwriter when I decided I didn't want to be an engineer. And um, and he was breaking into the business and he was getting you know his start on Next Generation. Um, and so after I finished my dissertation, I, you know, he, he encouraged me to come out and I slept on his couch for a while and and <laughs> I got an internship uh, through the Writers Guild on Star Trek. And then that led to being a science consultant because of my background. Um, and, uh, and then eventually I got to pitch some shows and, and then I wrote a script with Ron and uh, that was, yeah, that was how my start happened. Amazing. So, you know, I mean, Ron, obviously, I think was one of the beneficiaries of the, um, the open script policy. So were you, were, you came in through a slightly different route. Is that right? That you went in through an internship and then you were kind of suggesting scripts to them that way or? Yeah. Although that it, the, the open submission policy was, was also part of it because I had written a spec, um, and mm-hmm. then submitted it through the open submission policy. They read it. They said, yes, we'd like you to, we could, we could have you come in as an intern, which was a, mm-hmm. a program that was, um, administered by the Writers Guild. And so, mm. um, yeah, Ron had, had, had sent in a script that was per, that was bought. Um, I think that was the bonding mm-hmm. that was his first script. And then like Renee Echeverria, for example, he also sent in a script that he just wrote because he liked the show and that was purchased and that was his way in. Brandon Braga, he was a television academy intern, um, mm-hmm. and I was a writer's guild intern. So that was our, our core group was that. So we had all kind of come in kind of that way. You were all pretty young, right? I mean, this was a, uh, it, was that unusual for a writer's room to be, uh, cause obviously you've got Michael Pillar, who, you know, is a little bit more, more seasoned or more experienced, but then to have all these, it, it feels like that was sort of part of the culture there. These young guys who were being, molded to you know uh, <laughs> i think it was a, a a little bit of an odd circumstance usually there's a little bit more of a mix but what had happened mm-hmm. on star trek and, and i got these stories mostly like secondhand from ron and some you know some from ira uh, ira mm-hmm. bear was in the at a certain point in next generation they basically got rid of their entire writing staff except for ron and michael yeah. pillar and then over the next couple of years new people came in and so what ended up happening on Next Generation, by the time I got there, I had written like a, I, I, I did like a free, some freelances in, in season five, and then I was on staff for six and seven. But mm-hmm. the last two years of the show, it just turned out that 
the staff was was Ron, Brannon, Renee, and myself. That was the core staff. Jen, uh, Jerry Taylor was was our direct boss, and Michael was you know Michael was was the big boss. Michael and Rick Berman were the mm-hmm. big bosses, and they were also launching new shows and all that other stuff. So, so for I'd say for the most part. Those last two years were Jerry Taylor and then the four of us. And yeah, we were all young because we were all like, you know, mid twenties. And, um, that was for each of us was our first job in the business. And so I don't know how usual that is. Um, cause it was kind of like, uh, you know, Jerry was the dead mother and all the kids were running around screaming. I mean, that's kind of, kind of what it was <laughs> <laughs> screaming at each other or screaming. It was like, it was, but. You know, really lively, fun, smart, good group of people who who all sort of came at story in in different ways, and it was a good balance. and And Jerry was a great boss because she just she kind of just let us run. You know, she just she she understood that she had a, a good bunch of people, and um, and so the the discussions were lively. The breaks were really really fun. Um, and we spent tons of time together. We go on vacations together. We just like, we all liked each other. And so it was a, it was a great, it was a great environment and a great place to learn. Um, and I would say that I, I haven't found too many staffs of similar quality in the sense that everybody in that room went on to run shows, create shows, create big shows and influential shows. I haven't really, I haven't, I haven't experienced that in a similar fashion since. And, you know, it was a, it was a combination of having a really good nurturing boss and direct boss and Jerry having Michael who really kind of gave us a lot of discipline and training. Um, and I think that that ultimately, you know, so, you know, paid a lot of dividends in our, in our professional careers. Definitely. I suppose that's what I was thinking in terms of, you know, being almost a sort of mentorship program or something, you know, taking people with obvious talent right at the start of their careers and then, you know, equipping them to go on and and do all these other shows, you know, to go on and, and be in that role themselves. I'm kind of curious, though, were you I mean, were you playing hard as well as working hard or was there too much work, to, <laughs> you know, other than the vacations? Was there kind of too much work to have much fun? There was a lot of play. (laughs) There was, there was a lot of play. There was a lot of play. I mean, you know, again, you're talking about, you know, a bunch of kids in the business for the, you know, all of us kind of, I think Renee, Renee had, you know, he had, you know, he, he was, uh, had started kind of a career as a playwright in New York City. And so he moved into it. But, um, you know, it was just, you know, you're, you're young, you're in Hollywood, you're finally making some money. It's like, it's like, you know, you're going to, you're going to enjoy the experience. And it really was fun. Um, we had a great time, you know, and it was, and it, it never really felt like work. I have to say, um, I, I, I often tell the story about, you know, when you're, and I was the, you know, the, the low man on the totem pole on the writer staff. And so I was parked on the, in the, the crummier lot on the side of Paramount and it's, um, I don't know if you know the, the lot or where you've been, but that particular way onto the lot, you, from the parking garage, you come through the old Desilu Studios, which is, you know, um, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz's studio, which was the original home of the original Star Trek series. And I'd walk, th- I'd walk through that door and there's this great picture on the wall, like where the, the security guard is. 
of, of Lucille Ball and Ann Souther on a, on a cart, like, you know, just uh, uh, running around the lot. You walk through the back door, and the first thing you see is the Paramount Water Tower and with the big Paramount logo on it. And it was like every day coming to work was like, oh, my God, I, I you know, if they only knew how much I would pay to have this job. <laughs> it was it was it, it was that kind it was that kind of experience and so i think we all just got a just a it was just fun it did it didn't honestly seem like work um it was just i mean you know plenty of arguments plenty of creative you know dust-ups all in good spirits and all in good fun and again all to to jerry's credit because you know the first thing she would say and I, and I i say this to this you know to the to the day when i'm starting a new writer's room she said it was like you know how we work in this room was was an adage that was attributed to mike nichols which was best idea wins you know and it's just that it's not about hierarchy it's not about who screams the loudest it's not about you know who's got the bigger title it's just you know best idea wins that's a great way to that's a great way to run a room because people will say what they think and not be afraid to say what they think. Um, and if you get the right balance of people, you can get some really good stuff. And you ended up writing with quite a lot of them. I mean, it, it seemed just looking at some of your credits, there are kind of all, lots of different pairings. The first being with Ron when you worked on the first duty. Um, you you obviously had known him for a while, but what was that like? Uh, was that the first time you'd actually written something together? Um, well, that was my first script, and and that was really Ron, um, you know, going to Michael and saying, you know, because I'd pitched stories and not really gotten anything off the, you know, out of the blocks, and uh, Ron going to Michael and saying, look, I want to give Noreen a chance to to show what he can do, and I want to write this script with him, and Michael said, great, and so. Um, we we often paired up on Next Generation in terms of, you know, sharing stories, sharing credits. Um, you know, it was part of it was because of the number of episodes that you had to make a year because Next Generation was 26 episodes a season, which is a staggering number now by, you know, today's standards. But, that you know, and so and our staff was small. Um, you know, in season six, it was, like I said, the four of us and Jerry that did the bulk of the writing. Joe Minoski was also there. He was a, sort of a consulting producer, I think, at that point. Um, and uh, so it was just, you know, the necessity to turn out a lot of stories and a lot of scripts. So we had a very, it was almost like a pitching rotation in baseball, right? It's like every every four or five episodes you were up. And so it just meant you had to, you know, you had to turn things around really quickly. So sometimes that meant we paired up. Sometimes that meant we, you know, I'd write a story, somebody else would write a script. It's like, it would go like that a lot. Um, so, um, and that was just, I think, a necessity just because of the volume of the work. Yeah, I noticed that quite often you would be alternating. So like uh, Face of the Enemy, I think, was Renee's story, but you wrote the teleplay and Preemptive Strike, the opposite. I mean, it's not, I was sort of... Um, maybe under the impression that when you see, you know, story by one person and, and teleplay by someone else, that's, that is more the case where someone sold an idea or something. Do you know what I mean? Or someone, and, and then the more experienced person is the one actually, you know, putting it into practice. But it seems like that was quite common for the, for even within the kind of core writing staff to divide up those jobs on a show. Um, yeah. I mean, it's tricky because sometimes like, for example, you would see a story credit by a writer you hadn't seen before. Sometimes what that meant was 
That was a fan who had submitted a script that had the core idea for a story that we purchased, we bought in-house, gave that person a story credit, but then we would take the script and, and do that on the writing staff. So there were plenty of those. And, you know, there, the, the contracts can work in different ways. You can have a story. You can give somebody a story with an optional teleplay, you know, and that's what would often happen if we purchased literary material from uh, people who had submitted, as, as I recall. Um, and um, so, yeah, so it, it would be lots of different you know, sort of roots to that. But in terms of the stuff that any episode that went on the show, however, almost 100%, I would say, the stories had been broken as a group in the room because we, we did all of our story breaks together. And so that was, you know, regardless of what the credits said at the end of the day, this the this, this story in the break was was really the work of the staff. And I think that's true on almost every television show these days still. And the first duty, obviously, was a pretty great uh, episode to have out of the gate. I mean, that is, you know, a real fan favourite, but also one that goes in quite a an unexpected direction, I suppose, in terms of the story that it um, comes up with for Wesley. Uh, where did that was that your idea initially that you'd come up with or, and you took it to Ron or how did that come about? I, I you know what I you'd have to ask Ron I, I I can't remember I know it was something that we had talked about and and it was mm-hmm. a I, I don't know if, I, I think it might have started as, as something that Ron wanted to do or there was the idea about just going back to Starfleet Academy with Wesley and it became mm-hmm. this I, I honestly can't recall um, the the specific origin of it but what what became rapidly the, the core of it and, 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 a, and a cause of some <laughs> conflict internally was mm-hmm. this idea about lying to support your friends or, or to protect mm-hmm. your friends. And, and I think what that was was almost a, I, I, I hesitate to use the word, but generational divide. Michael was not right. a fan of that idea. And Ron and I, I think just because we had been, you know, friends in, in college and in fraternity together were like, oh, this is totally the way to go. Of course you mm. would support your friends. And and so I think that that internal conflict actually made the show itself as a piece of drama really interesting because it was, you know, I, I think what you were seeing at that point in Next Generation was the was, you know, creatively, especially the the younger writers, chafing against this idea that Everybody in Starfleet was perfect. Everybody, you know, everybody always told the truth. Nobody got drunk. Nobody was ever cruel. It was like, it, it was a, you know, it, it was, it was sort of a, I think the, you know, the lovely part of, of Gene Roddenberry's vision that, that, you know, people could become better. Um, but it's also, you know, I think it, you know, <laughs> flies in the face of human nature somewhat. You know, I think, mm-hmm. I think Ron, I think Ron, you know, ultimately, you know, pushed back against these ideas in Deep Space Nine and then, and then further in Galactica. Um, you know, the, um, but it was definitely something that we talked about a lot is that people were just too good and, and it, it made, it made them kind of less interesting. And so this was one of the first times where, you know, it, that that actually became a point of conflict. The idea about lying and and where where does your duty lie? Does it lie to truth? Does it lie to your friends? Does it lie to your oath? Does it you know? And so, I I think it was a it was a nice way to 
to for me i mean as a, as my first professional credit um it's uh you know it's something that i look back on very very fondly and with and certainly with some pride and nick lacano i think in that episode you know makes quite a good case in a way i mean watching it you feel that tension you feel that kind of uncertainty about you know what would you do in that situation in some ways wesley's hand is forced because picard works it out and threatens to reveal all anyway but if that hadn't happened you do sort of wonder you know i don't know i think it's a tricky one and certainly every time i watch it i I feel you know that ambivalence and that uncertainty a couple years after that episode aired we got a we got an email back from from a fan who said that uh somebody who'd gone to the air force academy and they used that episode to teach their cadets about the honor code and I thought that was such a great compliment to the show. Um, I, I wish I still had that email somewhere. I think it was way, way back in the day, but, but I, the conflict that you're talking about really was the heart of it. And, and at the end of the day, everybody has a good point. Everybody has a good point. So, um, I think that's what good shows are made out of. And you also, of course, with that episode brought Robert Duncan McNeil into Star Trek. Now, I've heard this rumour for years that the reason that Tom Paris in Voyager is a different character from Nick Lacano is because of an anxiety about payments that would have to be made. And I'm assuming that is to you. Is that is that true? Is that did they change the character because they otherwise otherwise you'd have been getting residuals from every episode of Voyager or or or, or has uh, someone sort of got the wrong end of the stick here? No, I think I think Ron and I kind of got the wrong end of the stick there because they use the same they they use the same actor. They take a character named named Nick Lacarno and they turn him into Tom Paris. Okay, <laughs> it's so different with the same backstory. Um, okay, <laughs> you know, it was a weird I, one though, wasn't it? I mean, because it does it does feel like to, in in early Voyager. Obviously, Tom changes a lot over the course of Voyager, but in those early seasons, he does feel very much like the same guy, or, or certainly the same kind of guy. You know? Yeah, he sure does. <laughs> um, I can't speak to the the specific deliberations as to you know what made that. Uh, who knows? It could have been something from legal. I think it's kind of mm-hmm. you know. I mean, you know, we're, we're far removed from that, but I think it's kind of shitty, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, it's like. Because they own the characters anyways, right? All it would have been, all it would have been is, is a, is a character payment, which they didn't want to incur. So I'm not sure what, I'm not sure. I don't know. I think the reasoning is a little flimsy on their side, but you know, oh well. <laughs> it's, it's fine. <laughs> we all know the, tr- we all know the truth. We all know the truth. <laughs> Everyone knows, and you know, and a lot of fans have their headcanon explanations that Nick Lacano was just a, a sort of, you know, a pseudonym he was using because he didn't want people <laughs> to know who his who his father was, who was hired okay. in Starfleet, and so on. You know, there's a kind of cover up going on there. <laughs> people have kind of squared that circle one way or another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you worked on um, just looking at some of the other episodes of Next Gen that you worked on, some real, again, as I say, kind of fan favourites, Face of the Enemy, fantastic episode that really, um, I feel like that's the one that kind of showed that Deanna Troy could do more, do you know what I mean, that really pushed her into a, a, a more interesting place somehow. And, and that was a character that had taken a while to sort of develop um, 
Yeah. There was frustration there, wasn't there? I've heard Marina Sirtis talking about worrying she was going to be fired in those early seasons because her character wasn't quite coming together. That sort of feels like one of those episodes where a, a tricky character is given a whole new uh, sort of lease of life, a whole new kind of side to them somehow. Mm-hmm. I I think so. I mean, I, I it's one of my favorites of of of, uh, of the next gen run was was Face of the Enemy. I was always a real fan of Marina, and I felt that she had been underused in the show. Um, you know, I mean, I think part of it is that next gen sort of straddled that that time. You know, yes, it was started in the in the late eighties, but the show in many ways is sort of like a was like a stepchild of the seventies, and so they had this character in this very kind of mushy, undefined role. And she was in the chain of command, but she was, oh, she was a girl and she didn't, wasn't wearing the uniform. And so in the latter years of, of next generation, I think all of us were like, this is kind of like, this is bullshit. She's, I don't know, she's either an officer, or she's not an officer. And we put her in the uniform. I think that was Ron's idea. Um, and, um, and, and so we just said, oh, here's, you know, here's just somebody knew that hadn't really been given the screen time that they really should get. Um, and so I think that, you know, that was, that was the development into it. And, and so we started thinking about, okay, how do we put her into situations where we can showcase her a little bit? And, and you're also in, you know, the, the later run of a show, you kind of want to do that for every character, right? You want to give everybody a showcase, you know, we did the same thing with Gates and with, with LeVar. And, you know, I think that everybody got, I think everybody got more focus as the show, you know, went into its later seasons. Um, I think that was a really good thing. And I, I do think Marina, Marina was, was really had a, had a great presence on screen. And I think that she, um, she was underused in the show overall. One of the unusual things, I guess, about your time on Next Gen is that you had these two roles. So you had this role, you know, writing scripts, but then also as the science consultant. And now, obviously, you know, you mentioned you had this PhD in physics and so on. Um, how how did that come about? Did someone sort of clock, oh, we've got a kind of real scientist here. He could be, <laughs> you know, he could be put to work uh, doing the stuff we don't have the first clue about, you know, <laughs> it was, you know, the, the, the position there existed before I even got involved on next generation. It was, um, from what I understand, um, Gene Roddenberry had felt the original series didn't really have a good scientific foundation. And so when next generation came around, he wanted an actual science consultant. Um, and, and it was somebody who had, you know, talked to the writers about the scripts and make sure, you know, you know, that, that astro, you know, astronomical phenomenon were correct or named correctly and, you know, a bunch of things of that nature. And, um, what it was happening when I came on as an, as an intern, well, I guess, no, I guess, did I, I can't remember. Boy, this is so long ago. Uh, I think I, I came, I think I came on board as the writer's guild intern first and then became science consultant subsequently. I think that's how it worked. Um, but what had happened was the person they had as a science consultant, was butting heads with the writers quite a bit, saying, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, that's not real. And so they wanted a new science consultant who was more sort of attuned to the writing side of things. And, and so because I had, you know, my engineering background, it was like, it was a, it was a good fit. And I had come through the writer's room, right? So um, anyway, so they wanted a, a, a science consultant who was, I think, a little bit more attuned to the drama and so I kind of fit the bill. And so it was also after, after my internship was done, which was like a six week internship. 
um, it was a way to, of staying around and connected to the writers and still being able to like pitch story ideas, et cetera. So that's how I kind of wound up in, in that particular role. And I guess one of the tensions with Star Trek is that it is, there is a lot of science in it, if you know what I mean, but also a lot of the science is kind of made up. And there's also, you, you know, there's a sense of kind of, I mean, when I was growing up and, and getting into Star Trek, I had all the books, you know, the technical manuals, all these kind of things, and was was reading about all this kind of fictitious science. And I found it sort of fascinating in that sort of world building area, I suppose. But there's, there's a tension there, isn't there, between the kind of real science and the fake science in a way. And you presumably were responsible for managing that, um, that fine line. <laughs> well, I, I very rapidly understood that the job of the science consultant on Star Trek was not to really consult about science so much as it was to to sort of be the keeper of consistency with the fake science. Because, you know, uh, Rick Okuda, I mean, uh, Michael, Michael Okuda and Rick Sternbach had done the technical manual for next generation. And they had, you know, they had created these underpinnings of technologies that we were supposed to, you know, you know, have on the ship. And, you know, it was, it was more about jargon and nomenclature, I think at the end of the day and coming up with cool words to describe phenomena. And, and, and I think, you know, the, the, a fair knock against next generation was the amount of like, you know, people would write in scripts, tech, the tech, you know, and it, it became like this, there's a lot of jargon about do this and reverse the polarity of that and anti-tacky on this. It's like that does not wear well in the show because it's just, it's, it's, it becomes effectively, it's no different than magic, right? It's like, it just is, it's an arbitrary solution to an arbitrary problem. And it's, um, but you know, I, I think again, that, that was, that, that is probably attached to, you know, uh, I would say a, a good natured attempt to give it more of a, a scientific sounding basis, I guess. Um, but, you know, things like, you know, <laughs> you're, you're dealing with a ship that creates its own gravity. I mean, okay. <laughs> it's like, you know, you're, t- you're talking about faster than light travel. Like your science has already been thrown out the window right to a large extent right from the beginning so you know so yeah but that was the style of the show that was part of what it was you know and i think it's um uh yeah it was fun for the fun for the time you've also got this element which always strikes me sort of going back to next gen episodes with particularly with the computer and the holodeck Sometimes you get the feeling the characters almost don't quite understand how some of those things work in terms of like it will do surprising <laughs> things and no one quite gets why it did them or you, do, you, do you know what I mean? There's, there's almost a sense the technology is so complicated and so sophisticated. It's slightly, you know, it, albeit these are very competent, very scientifically minded, brilliant people, but at times it sort of even seems slightly beyond them somehow. Well, I think what you're describing is is a trap of your premise, right? You've created a future with all of these miraculous things. And what do you have to do to create drama? Every week you have to break something. (laughs) And so that's, if you really think about it, it's kind of problematic. It's like, like every time you wanted to put somebody in danger, you had to break the communicators. You had to turn off the transporter. You had to make it impossible. Like all of the things that you've created in the show that are normal tools, you had to destroy them to create situations that were interesting to watch. 
right? So that is a, again, I think it's a, it's a trap of the premise of the show. And so, you know, yeah. So I guess the short answer to what you're saying is, yep, that's exactly what would happen. <laughs> is that, that every, every system had to suddenly, had to suddenly manifest unexpected things. You know, like Barkley being trapped in the, you know, in the netherworld of the transporter and, you know, the holodeck breaking or doing something or something becomes sentient. It's like, it's, 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 it, what it is, is it's an effort to try to like working within the rules and the, and the frameworks that you've started and, and, and established to create new things that are unexpected and surprising. It's very tough because the, the, the technological elements that the show had really created made everything really hard, right? It's like, why would you ever be in danger if you had a transporter? Why would you ever go anywhere if you had a, a, a holodeck and a replicator? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, why would you ever leave home? It's, it's, it's so, I mean, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, I think that, again, because you wanted to, you were, the desire was to create this amazing looking future and, and, you know, subtextually say, look, we're smart. We got our shit together. We created this kind of utopian place. But drama is very hard. Um, it's very hard to create drama inside a utopia. It sounds almost as if the kind of world building of Star Trek and the, and the drama of Star Trek are kind of at odds then. And I suppose we've heard a lot about this Roddenberry box and the kind of, you know, these stipulations that have been handed down about avoiding conflict and the way humans would behave in certain situations. Um, and I think Ron's script, The Bonding, was a controversial one, wasn't it? Because it dealt with grief mm -hmm. and kind of, you, you know, how people would cope with grief and so on. Um, but I, I suppose that is, it, it's tricky because one of the things that appeals to people about Star Trek is it's utopian. It's that it's quite optimistic. It's positive uh, compared to so much science fiction that, you know, uh, maybe wonderful and fantastic and dramatic, but also a little bit depressing. You know, typically that's not what you get, uh, with Star Trek, but I can see it's tricky if you've got those, those two elements are almost fighting each other slightly and you have to find a way of, um, making that tension work for you rather than against you. I think it's how you phrase the question. And, and the, the, the thing that comes to mind often is sort of like the distinction between Star Trek, the original series and next generation. It's like, the original series was as much like, you know, expression of, you know, you know, 1960s America, post Kennedy, like going out into the world and trying to do good things. But there was a line in it, I think from, what was it? A taste of Armageddon, which is, and I'm going to, I'm not going to get the line right, but to paraphrase, it's like Kirk says something like, yeah, maybe we are b barbarians, but today we choose not to be right. It's like, but it was an acknowledgement of the darker side of human nature, right? In Next Generation, the premise seemed to be that we are no longer barbarians, is that we have put that side away. And that is problematic. It's like, it is, I think that, because the issue is about the struggle, right? Is, is, is to acknowledge the darker side and the darker impulses of human nature. But to say that we choose a path forward that is good or, 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 or that is kind or that is, that is positive and we don't have to destroy ourselves. I, I feel like in Next Generation, it pushed so far the other direction that it became harder to actually see them as sort of actual human beings. 
And that's a tougher place to be from a storytelling standpoint. It's certainly something that is wonderful to aspire to. But, you know, again, not, a, not the greatest, easiest place to make dramatic situations. And obviously with Deep Space Nine, we saw that slightly turned on its head in that, you you know, you did have characters with kind of shady pasts and, and you know, who'd done much more questionable things. And I'm interested after Trek, you kind of went over to Farscape. Now, that's a show which is much more, uh, you, you know, you've got this kind of ragtag group of people uh, and they may have criminal pasts. They may have, do, do, do you know what I mean? They're not in any way, uh, paragons at all. And I think you're one of the early episodes you wrote for that show is, um, again, a massive fan favorite for Farscape fans, which is the one that, um, looks at the kind of the past crimes of, um, in a sense, a couple of the characters. And to me watching that, it feels, that feels very much like it could be a Deep Space Nine episode. Do you know what I mean? That sort of sense of the, the guilt that we carry with us and the kind of, you know, having a checkered past one way or another and what that, how you try to kind of move forward from that. Farscape was operatic. I mean, you know, that was, you know, David Kemper, who was the showrunner. Those, those are really his sensibilities. He just, he liked big emotions and, 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 and dark emotions. And I mean, you, you, you it's got an intensity to it. Um, you know, I, I think that's part of the appeal of the show. Um, and, 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 and it's this crazy imagination. You know, it's really, it's, and, and really quite beautiful. Um, you know, but, but it's, it's certainly those are places that we would never, ever have gone in next generation. It's like that, the, the response would have been that this makes the characters unredeemable, you know, and, and I, and I, and, you know, it's just, again, this is very, I think it's just a, it's a different sensibility. Um, you know, I mean, and, and definitely Deep Space Nine was moving in that direction. Uh, and I think as much of, as a reaction, um, to, to next generation. But yeah, I mean, it was always, it was always a struggle. I mean, it was a, you know, I'm, uh, I don't know if you've ever, you've interviewed Ron, but, you know, talk about, talk about family, you know, the episode, you know, post, you know, Picard and the Borg, you know, I mean, for, for heaven's sake, they created the an entire series, <laughs> you know, Picard, which is, is sort of landed in that place. But, but, you know, it's like, but just dealing with those emotions, was sort of, oh, we shouldn't go there. That's not, you know, it's like, so, yeah, I think, um, you know, again, it, it, it's coming from a very good place. I think, you know, the, the, the core impulse behind choosing not to do that is good. Again, I think what it does is, is it, is it, is it puts the audience in a position where they look at people and they go, they don't feel very real to me. And it's like as much as as much as you could aspire to be them, maybe you understand them a little bit less. And I think that's something of a, you know, that's something to think about. So did you find moving over to Farscape, having kind of cut your teeth on Star Trek, were there things that you had to sort of consciously put to one side? Do you know what I mean? Did you have to, um, you know, a bit like if you're if you have someone who sort of transfers and has to kind of set aside their experience of, of one way of working because it's a very different environment or a very different world that you're a different sandbox that you're playing in. Do you know what I mean? Did you have to kind of deliberately uh, mark that separation or did that just come naturally from the kind of stories that um, were coming up on that show? Well, I, I had, you know, I mean, I was the first out of the fold of Next Generation to go out into the world. But before I did Farscape, I, I was on, I, I'd been on a couple other shows. I was in, on Sequest, 
the last season of that show, and, and I did then, then I did three years on The Outer Limits, for which was on Showtime at that time. So I had I had an opportunity to sort of like push myself away from some of that stuff. Um, because all of those shows, I think, lived in a, in a different place emotionally than Next Generation. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I think one of the things that actually attracted me to Farscape was that, was that operatic sensibility. I mean, it was, you know, it was just, it was, it was kind of fun. <laughs> it was just kind of fun. Um, and, um, you know, there were definitely times when you would, when you were, you felt on, on Next Generation, writing it was just, God, they're just too good. <laughs> they're just too perfect. And, you know, so you'd be like, mm, just like to mess them up a little bit. <laughs> and um, by the time you come to The Expanse, I guess that is, you know, again, a very different world uh, as well. And interestingly, talking about the science, that's a show where it feels like the science is much more grounded. Um you know, I don't know. I'm guessing you have scientific experts on that show, but uh, probably your background is is helpful there because because that's that's it feels very much like sort of you know if Star Trek is soft sci-fi, that's kind of hard sci-fi. It's kind of you know everything feels very precisely worked out, and whether it is or not, I don't know, but it feels very very real. I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, it, it, we do not have scientific advisors on the show. Um, however, Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham, who wrote the books, did a tremendous amount of research and they both have, you know, backgrounds which, which lean into, into the hard sciences and, and, and then you put me in the mix, you know, it, it's what are the, one of the things that actually attracted me to the project, because I'd stayed away from science fiction for quite some time, um, was that, that this was a show that in the books, had had made space a character like the actual physics of space was was sort of baked into the to the drama and that was kind of unique because you really have to go probably to like 2001 to get to something that actually expressed space the way it is um and you know most science fiction tends to get things very very wrong um or just ignore things altogether and, you know, you know, the, the, the joke of <laughs> we would make on our very first episode of The Expanse was the big action sequence in the first episode is the ship turning around. <laughs> it's this big old ship just flipping around and turning on, you know, turning on its drive in a very, very hard braking maneuver because rockets only push in one direction. The Enterprise moves like, it doesn't even move like a plane. It just goes up and down. It moves like a video game almost that doesn't have any physics, right? It's like, it's like, and, and, you know, one of the things that's been fun about the expanse is not ignoring the realities, the physical realities of space, but using them, you know, for dramatic effect and creating things that are, that are new and interesting and that people haven't seen before. You know, I think, you know, every time we do a battle, you know, and people watch and they go, that's amazing. And it feels really, really real. And that's, that's what we strive for on the expanse. And it's interesting if you think of it in comparison to say something like Star Trek Discovery, when that 
uh, kicked off, there was a lot of kind of debate around, you, you know, this kind of magic mushroom drive. Feels like with that show, they really leaned into the kind of, uh, wild and wacky side of it. With the expanse, I've, you know, I've seen the social media, uh, you know, on Twitter, the debates over, you know, very precise questions about gravity and, you know, airlocks and all these sort of things. But, you know, people really sort of drilling down into the nitty gritty of it and, uh, you know, and, and, and getting in quite heated arguments about exactly, you know, someone saying, oh, this isn't how it would work. And then, you know, a physicist comes in and explains, oh, no, actually, yeah, that is how it would work. Um, so you've got that kind of, I don't know, you've, you've activated a different section of your audience somehow, I think, by by taking that approach. I, I like to think so. I mean, and it's really fun to see. I mean, I remember one time we had like some comment on, I forget where it was from. We did this bit where there's a belter who has like a, a wire dangling inside their helmet and then they open their helmet and then they just kind of, and they, as they're exhaling, they just yank the wire out and they close the helmet. And, and somebody said, Oh my God, no, that's bullshit. Cause their head would explode. And we're like, no, <laughs> no, it wouldn't. And, and so, you know, and somebody later corrected that person on the same comment thread. And it was, so, you know, it's a, it's what's really interesting about it is, is it's enabled us to do things in a science fiction show that people have not seen before. You know, they, they don't see ships, you know, our, our ships don't fight like when, when there's a battle, they don't fight like, you know, World War II fighters in the Pacific. It's like, it's not that kind of thing because you can't move that same way in space. It's like, there's no force fields. There's no, there's no tractor beams. There's no, what they are is like the best weapon is throwing something at another ship really, really, really fast, a big chunk of metal, you know? And, um, and, you know, like I said before, rockets only push in one direction. You know, you have to look, you have to think about conservation of momentum. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a whole problem that we have at the end of one series of uh, season five, that's entirely about conservation of angular momentum you know it's like and that's not something you normally think about in a in a science fiction show but it's it is baked into the dramatic situations on the expanse we don't you know you're not necessarily seeing the calculations and we're not talking about it (laughs) and one of the things that strikes me about that show as well is that the technology it feels sort of in the background. It feels like it's familiar. I mean, even this, the Epstein drive, which is the kind of equivalent of the warp drive, we we sort of go into it a bit more later on, but it, there's something about the style of the show. It's a little bit more like something like the wire that doesn't, where, where you kind of, you have to absorb the world and you kind of gradually have to learn as a viewer to understand how things work and the interaction between them. It's not kind of laid out, uh, for you do, do you know what i mean a sort of going in it, it doesn't make it so easy for you as a viewer to kind of pick up exactly how everything works you kind of just have to go with it and and realize that eventually it will start to make more sense somehow well mark, mark fergus who co-wrote the pilot with them uh hawk osby he, he always liked to say like you know when you get into a car you don't go my i'm going to turn on the internal combustion engine and it's like you don't say that you just turn on the car and you drive right it's like that is how people have a relationship to technology when it's just a tool. So, you know, we're doing a show that, you know, the expanse was, you know, in large part, if you think about like Holden and the gang, just truck drivers in space, right? It's like they know how to use things. They know how to work these things, but the, the, the show is not about those things. And so the, the, you know, the, the, the way we approached it in the expanse is, 
that stuff is uncommented. Those are just tools that you use to live. You know how they work. You know how they fail. You know how to fix them. But that's about it. And so we don't dwell on the technological aspects of these things. It's not like a, you know, it's not like some cyber porn kind of show. It's like where we're, you know, we're like so into the tech of everything that we are talking about it all the time. It's just not the way it is. Um, and, and you get to see the effects of it. You get to see ships moving in really interesting and unexpected ways. You, you get to see like, you know, you know, um, you know, gravity assist trajectories turned into a betting game with slingshotters like belters. I mean, you can see things like that, but, um, you know, and, and you can, you, and light delay becomes your friend because you can cut people off from one another. And then they're talking about things that have already happened. I mean, those are all things that get used to create drama that we embrace in terms of the reality of the world. And even the Epstein drive, it's not magical. It's just, it's just efficient. It's, it's an efficient fusion drive that allows you to, to basically go from, you know, one, you know, from Earth to, you know, the outer planets under constant thrust, right? A third G. And so like, and then if you can do that, well, suddenly a lot of things become possible. That's all it is. And so, you know, that's an interesting way to, to make a show. That's again, one of the hallmarks of the books that we, that we really embraced and tried to really stay true to in the series. And it's also kind of dangerous. I mean, not only do you have a sense that space is quite a dangerous environment to be in, you know, you could get, you know, out the airlock or, or freeze or, or whatever, but actually going at those speeds, you know, you have characters who, who suffer a stroke or some kind of, uh, do you, do you know what I mean? That, that there is a real uh, risk to that. It kind of reminds me, you know, when they first built uh, steam trains, everyone was convinced that, you know, your brain would explode or something if, yeah. you, if you went on a steam train or whatever. But there is that kind of risk to it. Absolutely. Well, Ferris wheels, you know, skyscrapers, the same, the same issues on all of these things. But yeah, it's, you know, I, I think if you're talking about, you know, in the, in the long sense, you know, the, the distinctions between next generation and, and the expanse, the enterprise, ostensibly a military ship, it felt like a hotel, right? It, it felt like a hotel. The ships on the expanse don't feel like hotels. It's like, you know, they, 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 they feel like utilitarian things. And, and we talk a lot about function and we talk a lot about how things work as we're designing things on the expanse. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a different philosophy, than just saying we're going to make it look cool, right? It's like so. I again, it, it, it's it's part of the ethos of the show. It, it's like it's just it's just baked into the material, and we just tried to put that on screen. So the expanse obviously has been a huge part of your life for the past uh, you know number of years. That now has come to an end. Um, do you have plans for, for what's next? Uh, I mean, I can't help asking, you know, having moved back into sci-fi is, um, you, you know, do you, could you imagine a future going back to work on a track show again? Um, or is that something that you feel you've put behind you? What does your, what does the future hold for you? Um, I have to say, I really have, I, I really think this is a great time to be working in genre. There's just so many interesting things that you can do now. And just from a, filmmaking technology perspective the ability to make things is it's never been this is 
you can do things that have never been possible. Like shows that, I mean, people, you know, we, we talked about that early on with The Expanse. Like you couldn't have even done a show like, I mean, we started it six seasons ago. You know, you couldn't have done a show like that, you know, kind of until that point. I mean, it's just that the technical elements were so difficult and too expensive. But nowadays, you know, the ability to to create environments, to make things, to, to have visual effects that really support um, the storytelling, it's kind of unparalleled and they get better and better and better. It's just a fun time to be working in genre. I, I think it would have to be a really unique, you know, cop show or, or whatever that would pull me back into that thing. I mean, I, I would not feel the need to go back and do CSI again. You know, it's like, it's like, why, <laughs> why would I do that? It's, it's just, there's so many other places to go and, and periods to look at and, um, and, and great books that have, you know, defied adaptation up until now. Um, you know, I think, I think that's part of the fun of, of being in the business at this time. Well, I'm sure all our listeners will look forward to finding out whatever uh, is up next for you, you know, as and when. And in the meantime, very much look forward to seeing season six and seeing this uh, story closed out um, that we've been following for a number of years. Um, thank you, Naren, so much for, for talking to me. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And, and just remember, you know, there are three more Expanse books out there. The, the book nine is about to come out in, I believe, in November. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> So this might not be the end because I did see someone had described it as potentially a pause. And this is because there's a time jump. Is that right? I actually, I haven't read yeah. the books. I, I'm kind of meaning to, to go in and, and start making my way through them at some point. What kind of a time jump are we talking about? Is it a sort of, you know, 1969 to 1979 kind of time jump in Star Trek terms? I mean, is no, it the case it's, that, it's, you know, it's 30 years. It's 30 years actually between the end of book six and the beginning of book seven and books. Books seven, eight, and nine are are quite different than books one through six. Books seven, eight, and nine are really are really one story, um, and uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't shift focus the way you know sort of book after book does in books one through six. It's 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 a different structure. Um, so you know who knows who knows. Well, there's something <laughs> to look forward to. Who knows what the future holds? <laughs> Even those who, who work in science fiction all their lives. <laughs> Thank you, Naren, and best of luck with it all. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You're blended all right. Hello, I'm getting a lot of noise on the line suddenly. Sorry. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah. Sorry. Hang on. Oh, okay, good. Oh, no, no worries. No worries. I just want to make sure. It's all right. Look, okay. I'm in the room with a wireless printer. And I think ah! I to print <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. I was just trying to work out how to turn it off. That's hilarious. Sorry. Um, no, 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 no <laughs> Talking about science and technology. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, machine going haywire behind. <laughs> that's highly, that's, that's highly appropriate.